Well, welcome to week two of the class on the doctrine of conversion. Glad to have you here. Last week, if you were not here, we talked about the difference between being uh, new and nice, what those two kind of things look like. So whenever we are acting in like a moralistic way, trying to justify ourselves, how that's actually not what the Bible means when it talks about someone being converted and someone is given new life. So this week, we're going to kind of talk about something similar, uh, but just a different uh, maybe facet of that thought, which is saved, not sincere, God's work, not ours. So maybe another way to put that would be, we're just going to be talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation. So the fact that whenever a person becomes saved, whenever they are given the new birth, that's actually totally a work of God. And he uses human agents and human faculties to accomplish that, but the, initiate, the initiative is actually taken by God. So maybe a question for us to consider this morning as we begin is, how sincere is sincere enough? So when I was growing up, I attended several church camps pretty regularly. You know, whether it was summer break, fall break, spring break, I was there at camp. They were always exciting, loud music, you know, impassioned preaching, you know, solid preaching even you know, fun games, and just looking back, there was a ton of sweet memories with friends. You know, so, and I actually, in the summer of 2010, that was the time that I feel like that I understand the Lord converted me, was at a camp. You know, however, as I grow a bit older, I start to see some of the things, maybe I've taken off my rose-colored glasses and I can see things maybe a little bit better than I did while I was there. I start to question some of the practices of these events. You know, for example, I think... I can recall several times where I was at a camp and the sermon was about 20 minutes and the altar call was about 30 minutes. I think that's pretty normal practice at some, some of these events. Um, and you know, just with each repeat of the chorus, each repeat of the bridge of that worship song, you know, there's that internal pull to just make your way down the aisle, you know, to make some kind of decision. Even if you feel like you might have already been converted, there's still that pull, that emotional draw. So this calling to be sincere in your faith and just to take a stand for Jesus was invigorating in the moment. But what tends to happen after maybe a couple weeks of being back home and you're drawn again to that sin struggle or you're tempted in a way that maybe you weren't while you were at camp? You, know, you begin to wonder, did I really mean it? Was I harboring some kind of doubt when I prayed that prayer? Was I sincere enough? Perhaps I should go and be saved again and really mean it this time. So, Friends, just to begin this morning, I'd just like to open up for a few minutes, maybe so that we can all benefit from some of the wisdom in the room. I'd just like to hear from you um, maybe some of the ways that you have learned how to rest in the assurance that Christ has actually finished the work of salvation for you. Does anyone have anything that they might want to just share of how have you learned not to look to your past decisions or your past successes or failures, but just to look at Christ. How have you done that? Let's just take a few minutes to hear from some of you. So just, just noting that both the grace and the faith necessary for salvation are just gifts from God. They're not something that we muster up. They're just, whenever we exercise faith, it's actually something that he's given us the strength to do. It's not from within ourselves. That's wonderful. Anyone else? Hmm. Yeah, just, brother, that's a great way to just kill any kind of thought of 
you know, the idea is that somehow I've justified myself, so now by my sin, I'm now de-justifying myself. I'm becoming unjust, right? And just the fact that Christ has paid for all of our sin, that's wonderful. Maybe one more. Just ways that you've been able to assure yourself, to bolster your faith, that Christ has actually accomplished his work. Just leaning on those brothers and sisters in the faith just for their assurance. Absolutely. That's sweet. Yeah. So just that question is sincere or how sincere is sincere enough? You know, at the heart of that question lies the false assumption that conversion happens as a result of something that we do when in reality it's something that God does for us. So yeah, in this lesson we're going to be trying to answer three questions concerning the doctrine of conversion. And we'll start by trying to decipher what true conversion is and what it is not. That'll be our first point. But before we do that, let's stop and just pray and ask the Lord that he would help us as we study this topic. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. We pray that we would learn to rest and have great courage in his finished work, that we would glory in, uh, in our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So our first question, what is conversion? So in asking this question, we're primarily going to be talking about what happens at the moment of conversion, not necessarily all of the implications that can come as a result of that, or how to assess true conversion at a later date. So those questions, we're really going to, just going to dedicate future weeks of this class to answering some of those. But what we're really concerning ourselves with today, primarily, is what happens the moment that someone goes from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. So let's begin by uh, talking about what conversion is not. So for you note takers, there will be three subpoints under this heading. So the first is that conversion is not merely the conviction of sin. It's not merely the conviction of sin. So a common misconception that exists is that simply because a person feels the weightiness of sin or perhaps a sense of guilt for their sin, that that is indicative of conversion. Now, of course, the conviction of sin is part, certainly a part of the truly converted person's path to conversion. But it is wrong to say that merely the existence of some level of conviction is evidence enough to assure someone of their conversion, that they're saved. So humans who are unregenerate, have, by the providence of God, an ability to determine what is right and what is wrong. We, just, we call that objective morality, right? That there is something that is right and there is that which is wrong. Therefore, men and women, yeah, in their natural state, are totally able to be aware of their sin, convicted by guilt. You know, they can even understand themselves to be under the anger and under the wrath of God and His judgment, and yet be unconverted. It's important to note that. We can know what sin is. We can even know that we ourselves are guilty of sin, yet still be unconverted. So Jonathan Edwards has said that convictions like this are of light or sensibleness of truth. So by this, he's simply noting that even sinners can know that they're sinners and be sad about it. And that sadness for sin is not to be equated with the new birth. So in the lives of unbelievers, this sorrow for sin, it always seems to ebb and flow. You know, there are seasons where sin is shown worldly sorrow and hatred for a short time, and then almost with the changing of the leaves, you know, it begins to be coddled again and celebrated even in certain seasons. This is not the case with those who've received the new birth. Those who've been regenerated by God have actually been given a distaste for indwelling sin. This is not to say that they're free from temptation, or that they no longer struggle with sin, 
but it is to say that one who's actually been indwelt by the Holy Spirit cannot remain satisfied with being filled with sin. They cannot enjoy the presence of sin in their life. So they try their hardest, by God's grace, to rid themselves of it. So something else that we know does not come from true conversion is that anyone receives an extra-biblical revelation or message. So that's the second sub-point, is that true conversion is not merely a, it's not a new revelation apart from Scripture. So when we speak of conversion, sometimes it can come across like the person in question has found some kind of hidden truth or secret knowledge that led to this newfound faith and trust. You know, I'd just like to be very clear that true conversion um, does not happen by the introduction of any sort of extra-biblical material, extra-biblical evidence or knowledge that is found outside of the Scriptures. There is not the understanding of a new doctrine from outside of Scripture. And it's not a new mindset merely that someone has to put themselves in to be able to receive this knowledge. All the knowledge that is required for conversion and for living in godliness is found within the pages of Scripture. Scripture is sufficient for that. After all, mere knowledge we know is insufficient for the new birth. Think of Nicodemus, John chapter 3 from last week. Even the Pharisees, they were all the most well-versed, well-studied in the Word of God of anyone who lived in the culture at that time. But they were not saved. They were not converted. Why? Because they were trying to attempt to justify themselves based on knowledge. They had the knowledge, but it was not the knowledge that justifies them. So in order to be converted, one must not believe any new thing about Christ or the Bible other than that which it plainly states. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit which actually incites us to love that which has already been clearly revealed in Scripture. So John Owen's been well quoted as saying, if private revelations agree with the Bible, then they are needless. And if they disagree, they're false. It's a great way to put that, I think. So the new birth is not merely the conviction of sin, nor is it a new word from God. So let's now consider that third point, how conversion is not merely the inciting of our affections or our emotions. So here's just a quick question, quick poll of the audience. How many of you have ever cried in a movie theater? Okay, got some brave guys here. What's the last movie that some of you have cried in a theater at? Anyone brave enough to share? Mm. That's such a good series. Yeah. They made a movie. Wow. Okay. I guess I have plans this week. Anyone else brave enough to share? <laughs> Toy Story 4. <laughs> Just an emotional train wreck, huh? Love it. Anyone else? One more. Talon, you've never cried in a movie. <laughs> I just cried at my house. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the maybe the question. So what about it made you cry? Just the emotional like aspect of it, or maybe it's pulling on your heartstrings from maybe something that you saw as a child, and now it's bringing you back, and it's flooding you with all these new thoughts, all these new feelings. You know, but you you knew it wasn't real, right? I don't know. Sometimes our affections or emotion can be really brought up and exposed to things like film, drama, theater, music, you know, nature, etc. But it can simultaneously be the case that we are also able to affirm that it's still fiction. Yet similarly, we can have deep, moving experiences in our lives that stir up our affections in such a way that we can actually confuse ourselves for being born again while still not having the Holy Spirit as a resident in our heart. It is absolutely possible for someone to be affected 
in a visceral, almost out-of-body kind of way, even in the midst of someone preaching the true gospel. Yet they still remain completely devoid of any spiritual light. A person may well be affected by the story of Christ, his sufferings, his atonement, his resurrection, yet still not be brought to believe it. Belief is a gift only for those who've been converted. So remember when Jesus said to Peter concerning his confession, he said in Matthew 16, 17, he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. So why then has it become so popular, particularly in evangelistic settings, to use flesh and blood methods to try and produce spiritual ends. The more we understand Scripture, the more we are able to recognize just the lunacy of trying to use our own ingenuity to save souls. Instead of trusting God, that He will regenerate the hearts of dead men according to His own good pleasure, we bypass His authority and attempt to reanimate these corpses with emotionalism and works righteousness. You know, that just results in two things. A lack of true conversion and a lot of monsters walking around. You know, people who are dead believing that they're alive. Hear me. I'm not saying that emotions or our affections are evil or to be hated, but rather that our emotions are influenced by our hearts, which may or may not be regenerate. Our hearts are naturally sick and therefore tend to ascribe worth to the wrong things. But thank God that when he gives us supernatural light, whenever he saves us at conversion, he gives us a new heart with new affections, ones that desire to glorify God. This is how the Christian ought to be expressing their emotion out of honor and glory to God. So we've talked about what conversion is not. Let's now shift to talk about what conversion is. And there will be two subpoints here, note takers. The first of uh, the first thing we're going to look at on what conversion is is just the fact that we will now be sensing the excellencies of Christ. This is what conversion is. So by sensing the excellencies of Christ, I'm not merely speaking to the ability of a person to see the holiness, or Je- the holiness of Jesus or to believe that he was historically a morally upstanding person, although both of those statements are true. Neither do I mean to say that just because someone understands rationally that God is glorious, that they have therefore sensed the excellencies of Christ. It is certainly possible to grasp these concepts, yet not be converted. When God grants the divine light of regeneration, he is actually producing much more than our ability to just affirm rational arguments. You know, he's giving us a newfound acceptance and a supernatural abiding love for those things of Christ. Edwards again explains the difference between the unconverted and the converted in this way. He says, he, the saved man, does not merely rationally believe that God is glorious, but he has a sense of the gloriousness of God in his heart. There's not only a rational belief that God is holy and that holiness is a good thing, but there is a sense of the loveliness of God's holiness. That's what we mean by sensing the excellencies of Christ. So on one level, God has given all men an ability to understand and to rationalize while still remaining lost in sin. This is an effective being made in his image. So we have the natural ability to speculate, to evaluate things based on their merit. That's the kindness of the Lord. He's given us that ability. However, we must understand that conversion doesn't happen merely because someone possesses all of the right information about God. It happens when he grants us that deeper knowledge of the beauty of Christ. God, in his work of giving new life to the spiritually dead, also grants the capacity for seeing the loveliness of Christ. Once again, Edwards has much to say on the topic. Another note he makes is, 
there is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. The former may be obtained by hearsay, but the latter only by seeing the countenance. He's pointing out the obvious that, yes, we can know that honey is sweet by observing its chemical makeup, its chemical compounds, but so much more genuine is the knowledge of the sweetness of honey whenever you take a spoonful for yourself. That's how it is when we sense the excellencies of Christ. The next characteristic of true conversion that we'll look at is the conviction of the truthfulness of the gospel. Conviction of the truth of the gospel. So we just discussed the ability that God provides to behold the beauty or the excellencies of Christ. And out of this gift comes a second necessary gift, the conviction of the truthfulness of divine things. So when a man who has not received the new birth is presented with the truths of the gospel, he might well be able to comprehend the argument that the preacher is conveying. He can discern what the preacher wants him to believe. It's rational in that way. However, he will never be able to find them beautiful or be convicted of their truthfulness. You can just consider 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this verse just makes it so clear that there's a difference between receiving through our natural faculties the message of the gospel and being given spiritual sight to see something in a way that's altogether different than our nature would have us to see it. After all, consider again the state of the Pharisees. They, like the disciples of Jesus, beheld his miracles with their own eyes, did they not? They were onlookers when blind men were given their sight. You know, they received the news the same way that everyone else did when water miraculously became wine at Cana. They watched as a lame beggar was told to rise up and walk. You know, miracle after miracle after miracle, they watched the same as everyone else. Yet these miracles had a totally different effect on them than they did on those whom Jesus called his disciples. Why is that? It certainly wasn't because the disciples were let in on the joke and the Pharisees weren't. They weren't privy to the smoke and mirrors of a magician's act. Nor were the disciples more skilled in advanced reasoning than the Pharisees. Actually, quite the opposite is true. The only reason that the disciples were able to know Jesus as the Christ was because they were given help by God to see, to know, and to love the truth. Pharisees were not given this gift. So now that we have a working knowledge of what maybe conversion is not and what it is, let's now consider how God saves our people, how God saves his people, rather, in our second point. How does God convert people? So this question might be better worded as, how does the divine light actually, how is it actually given by God? Through what means is it imparted? How does he administer the new birth? To begin, let's begin by considering our God-given natural faculties. That's the first sub-point, our natural faculties. So it may seem fairly elementary, uh, but it's necessary to grasp in order not to wrongly understand at what takes place at the moment of conversion. So when God gives new life to people, he makes use of their natural faculties. So by natural faculties, what I'm meaning is simply our ability to hear, to see, to understand complex thoughts, you know, to be emotionally informed by things. You know, just those abilities that are natural, that belong to human beings. So abilities that for the most part, yeah, just belong to our nature. So an important distinction to make here is that while God has granted us the use of these many faculties, that does not mean that our faculties on their own can know or decipher all that is true. So truth doesn't emanate from our knowledge, but rather our knowledge comes from God's kindness in revealing himself. After all, he's the author of all knowledge. So to put it a different way, let's take, for instance, our ability to gaze upon a sunset. Our natural faculties would be made use, made of use in viewing the sun in its many colors. But we would not for a moment believe that our ability to behold such things therefore means that we cause those things to occur. 
Maybe just say it in yet a different way. <laughs> we know that when a person is blind, that the sunset still exists in all of its glory. The same is true of all those who have not been given the spiritual light of regeneration. God is still glorious and sovereign, but people in their faculties have actually been corrupted by sin. They've been blinded to the truth. And nonetheless, just as Jesus wiped the mud from the blind man's eyes and the scales began to fall from his eyes and his sight was restored, so he does with all those whom he has chosen to set his saving grace upon. He does it by aiding their natural faculties, giving them the ability to see their sin, repent and believe. So he uses our natural faculties, but he also uses external means. When we consider the external means that God uses to save souls, what I'm primarily referring to is the preaching of the gospel. This is the ordained method that God has chosen to use in securing a people for himself and his glory. So maybe you're wondering, what's the big, why preaching? What's the big deal with preaching? And I think uh, there's a, the 89th question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism actually offers a really great answer to that question. The question is this, how is the word made effectual to salvation? How is the word made effectual to salvation? The answer that it gives is that the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort in faith unto salvation. Yeah, we just see the centrality of the ministry of the word to sinners as the primary means of salvation that God has instituted. So maybe another way is perhaps a more personal way. However you came to know Christ as beautiful, however the Lord saw fit to save you, it was not, nor could it have possibly been, apart from the Word. When God saves people, He actually does it, He accomplishes it through His Word. Consider Romans 10.14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Apostle Paul here is making crystal clear the necessity of the faithful preaching of the gospel. And that that preaching of the gospel necessarily precedes saving faith. However, we know that just because a person has a functional, uh, functioning natural faculties and that they could have even grown up in a gospel preaching church, that doesn't necessitate that they are therefore converted. There is a third piece of the puzzle of salvation. Human faculties and the knowledge that those faculties receive, those two things are not enough to make a dead heart come alive. We need something else to help us. This leads us to our third point in the section where we'll consider how conversion lies solely with God's electing grace. That's our third point. That he uses our natural faculties. He uses the external means of the preaching of the gospel. Yet, conversion only comes as a gift of God. It only comes by God's word. It's absolutely true that by God's grace we are given human faculties. We're given the message of the gospel. But neither of those things on their own are sufficient for a person to be truly converted. In order for the new birth to appear, God the Holy Spirit actually has to grant you grace so that you might see and sense the sweetness of the gospel and to therefore accept it. So think with me for a moment. Imagine that you who has been given the gift of sight were told of a painting that was so beautifully and masterfully created that all who had ever looked upon this painting had just declared that it was actually the most beautiful work of art that they had ever seen. So much detail, such exquisite colors, such depth of texture. And that to gaze upon such a painting is actually a life-altering experience. Would you not do anything to want to see this painting? So now imagine that the location of the painting is revealed to you and that it's hanging on the wall of a cave 
where even the furthest extending sunbeams cannot reach it. And there's no light switch. What's the issue? It isn't that you don't have the natural ability to see and enjoy art. You do. It isn't that the thing to behold isn't real or isn't available to you. It is. You can actually just reach out and feel the frame. You can feel even how much texture is there. You know it's there. The issue is that there is no light by which you can see it. In order to truly understand and receive the full benefit of beholding the picture, someone has, a, has to make a way for light to be shown upon it so that you can see it for what it's worth. Friends, this is actually what happens when one is truly converted. Oftentimes the case is that many who have fully functioning faculties and who even grow up in the church listening to the gospel preached week in and week out remain unconverted. The natural faculties of men and the message of the gospel are necessary components, but the only reason that either of them ever work in salvation is because God, the Holy Spirit, floods their hearts and their minds with a divine light. We see this. Charles Wesley wrote a wonderful hymn called And Can It Be? And the third stanza says this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Hear me well. If you woke up today and had confidence in your standing with God, it is certainly because God made it so. He gave you a gift of salvation by flooding into your heart and soul the beauty of Christ crucified for sinners. And if you're here this morning and don't feel that safety, then do this. Repent of your sins. Believe and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Turn away from your sins to follow them no more and place your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. For if you do so, he is just to forgive. I can't remember who said the quote, but it's been well said that God loves to forgive your sins even more than you love to commit them. Friends, today is the day of salvation, says the Lord. And if you're in Christ, today's a day of gratitude, thanksgiving. So then, we know what is and isn't conversion. We know the means that God uses to secure it. But how does God receive the glory in our conversion? We'll spend the last bit of time together this morning thinking about this question. How is God glorified in conversion? The first way that he's glorified in conversion is by saving sinners from wrath. It's so easy to slip into the self-centered mindset that our biggest problems in life are things like I'm single and I desperately want a significant other. I feel stuck in my dead-end job. My relationship with my parents leaves much to be desired. If I can only earn X amount more per year, we'd be well supplied. If only my children would act differently in public. I look back on my career and I have... So many regrets. Friends, these are all serious struggles that you may be facing and they deserve the ability to be burdened by shoulders other than your own. So I'd encourage you to seek out someone even here at UBC to help you with these burdens. But I would also tell you that these are not the greatest problems that you will face in your life. Though they are real. The greatest problem that humans will face is that God Almighty is good and just and therefore will repay sin what it is due. And we are all, as the Bible tells us, children of wrath. We have loved our sin and made arrangements to sin. This means that God will, at the end of the age, if we are found to be guilty of sin, which we all are, 
that he will spend the rest of eternity performing divine acts of divine judgment against those sinners. We see it all over the Bible. Psalm 21.9 You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. Isaiah 59.18 According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. Colossians 3.5-6 Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is something that the Bible does not in any measure shy away from. God's wrath is the evidence of God's holiness and justice. But thank God that in His great love with which He's loved us in Christ, He has provided in His Son Jesus Christ a way for sinners to be made righteous before Him. Let's look to the next way that God is glorified in conversion. By showing grace to sinners. The grace that God has shown us is this, that God sent His only Son to live a sinless life, and by doing so, He actually earned a credit of righteousness before God. He then willingly went to the cross to take upon Himself the wrath of God for all who would come to believe in Him for eternal life. Therefore, those who received this gift of grace now not only have all of their sin forgiven, past, present, and future, but they've actually been given a credit of righteousness that Christ earned. This is how Christians are able to now boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. They're wearing the righteousness of the Son of God. R.C. Sproul said that the only way a sinner can ever enter into heaven is by actually putting on the robe. We're back. Check one, two. Yep. Yeah, an important note to make is that the grace that saves us is actually just that. It's grace. It's a gift from God to sinners. We didn't ask for it because we didn't want it until God gave it. But somehow we've become confused as to where our security in Christ actually lies. That's what we talked about whenever we opened this morning about how sincere is sincere enough. So what happens when we start to think that our faith, you know, that thing that has a tendency to ebb and flow in different seasons of life, is the thing that saves us? Naturally, our assurance of salvation will tend to ebb and flow as well. We'll begin to look back on the season of life that we felt God converted us, and we will begin to harshly critique the sincerity of our confession. We'll look for ways in which our initial prayers of repentance were imperfect, and therefore, we will begin to sow seeds of doubt concerning the validity of those prayers. We'll say things like, perhaps I just didn't believe hard enough. Perhaps I wasn't as grieved over my sin as I should have been. And making these assumptions, we'll lose sight of the reality that none of those things were the things that saved us. We were saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And both of these things were provided by God as gifts to us. Hmm. Therefore, the question isn't, what did I do back then? So much as it is, what do I continue to do now? If you've been truly converted, you will have, according to your new nature, a hatred for sin, a desire to continually repent and be restored, and an abiding belief and trust in the finished work of God at Calvary. So, yeah, to quote Michael Lawrence, whose book, a lot of this material is being taken from, his book Conversion, he says, faith isn't an emotion God evaluates based on its intensity. 
Faith is trust. And it's only as good as the object of its trust. Fanny Crosby put it this way. The question isn't, did you truly believe? But who did you believe in? We're meant to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. But it looks more like examining how we are remaining in the faith than constantly looking to the past and wondering, was what I did back then enough? Being kept by Christ and constantly reminding ourselves of the finished nature of His atonement is meant to give great hope and assurance, not ongoing anxiety and fear that God might change His mind. Let's now look to the third way that God is glorified in conversion. That's by expressing His great love for His people. So think with me about Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4-5. to They read this way. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The way the scripture introduces God's love to us in salvation is never after we have done something that has merited his love, but rather it always appears despite our misdeeds, despite our shortcomings, despite our having hated God. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is paramount for our faith that we understand that God doesn't love us based on our performance or according to our ability to be good, but rather His love is based on the constancy of His character. There was a British pastor who served under C.H. Spurgeon and Archibald Brown, and he said this concerning God's love, if you have known what it is to be wiped out and to feel what an unutterable sinner you are, then you will thank God that when He loves He finds the reason of his love in himself and not in you. To end this section, let's consider the words from a largely forgotten hymn, My Song is Love Unknown. It it really just depicts the beauty and the intentionality of God's love for us. The first stanza reads this way. My song is love unknown. My Savior's love to thee. Love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. Let's turn now to our to the fourth and final reason of how God is glorified in conversion, and that is He's glorified in the true purpose of conversion, which is His own glory. The ultimate purpose for God choosing to set His love and affection upon a people is actually so that He is glorified. Although we would never admit it, we're tempted often to believe that God saves us due to some potential that He sees in us. Perhaps according to some inherent goodness that we might possess. When actually God has set His love upon us so that others would look at our salvation and say, it must have been a really powerful God to save this person. Only God could make that work. They were a wreck. Their life was just trashed. Yet somehow, this strong God has done something. He's changed something. Isaiah 48 verse 11 says this concerning the salvation of His people. For my own sake, He repeats, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So how does God actually glorify himself in saving sinners? He does it by using our imperfections as opportunities to show the world his great perfection. He uses our weaknesses, something that he has none of, to bear witness to the watching world the unmatched strength of God. He uses our imperfect and incomplete understanding and knowledge as a means by which he can showcase his perfect wisdom and knowledge. He uses our physical limitations to show that He is the master over everything that is physical. He uses our spiritual blindness as a backdrop to portray the gracious light 
that He gives. Friends, our salvation is not primarily meant to make sure that all of our felt needs and desires are met, but rather our salvation is meant primarily to tell the watching world that though man is imperfect, weak, limited, full of flaws, that God is in fact rich in mercy, able to atone for all of our sins. He's strong to save. So what questions do we have from the lesson this morning? Maybe we can spend a few minutes answering some questions. So the question was, define what we mean whenever we say preaching. I think primarily the way we see that in the church is through what we do on the Lord's Day, gather together the preaching of God's Word. However, that's not to say that the only way that people are converted is in a Sunday morning setting. So I think the ministry of the Word, um, perhaps, I think that's a good thing you picked up on. Perhaps it could have just been widened to teaching, just true gospel-centered teaching. Because I think it's certainly the case that children are converted in the home from their parents teaching the word to them, teaching the truths of the gospel. Um, but yeah, I think whenever we consider the church and how the church is to function, the primary way that the word is administered to people is through the preaching of the word whenever the saints are gathered together corporately. But that's not to say that that's the only way that people are saved. I think I would reserve preaching to be correlated to the office of an, of an, sorry, of an elder. Um, that's not to say that in our personal evangelism we are certainly sharing the gospel. We are sharing the good news. And it, has, it is just as able to save someone in the same way that a preached sermon from a pulpit is able to save someone. The gospel is not bound in that way. Yeah. But I think, yeah, I would reserve preaching probably just to be tied to the office of an elder, naturally. Thank you for that question, though. Any other questions? Yes, sir? the question was, can someone truly desire to be saved, yet they are not given the new birth? They're not saved. I'm going to take a moment just to think through. I think our um, desires before Christ, before our salvation, are they are so stained with sin. I think we're so depraved in such a way that we can say we want certain things while actually we're wanting something different. So, I mean, we see it all the time of someone who, yeah, time and time again, seems to be showing sorrow for their sin, yet there's no repentance. There's no follow-up on the other side. And so from us looking as a third party to the situation, it's like, it looks like they really want to be saved, but God's not saving them. When in reality, yeah, salvation is initially a work of God just granting light. Um, it's a really difficult question. I mean, um, Cole, maybe you want to add to that a little bit? Yeah, so just to recap that it's the only way to truly, sincerely desire to be saved is it comes as a result of already being given a new heart. Thanks, brother. That helps. Yeah. Mm. That is super helpful. Yeah. Just the centrality of the church and being able to okay, help you. You're you're 
certainly not the best, and you might very well be the worst judge of yourself at certain times that you need others, yeah, that you trust to speak into that. Super helpful. He had a, a great, Judas had a great amount of worldly sorrow, like to such a degree that, yeah, he would take his own life, but there's, there is a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, right? Mm. Great point. And just how sweet First John is and just offering the knowledge that, okay, just you can be a new creation in Christ, yet it's very possible that you could still sin, right? First John 2, it's like, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with Jesus Christ, right? That's super helpful. You deceive yourself, that's right. Hmm. Yes, sir. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is very easy to get caught up and just, okay, I don't feel like I'm acting like a Christian right now. I've had a really hard two weeks. And then I think, yeah, like you're saying, is okay, let's zoom out and let's look at the past two years. Let's look at the past 10 years. And just look, and you can almost chart out God's kindness in just keeping you all along. I mean, yeah, you might feel just horrible now, and you might think, "I don't know how the has the Lord even saved me." Then, if yeah, you get that perspective, and you can look back and say, and that'll yeah give you some wind in your sails to even help you in your own repentance and you know confession now. It's a great, great word, brother. I'm going to pray for us. God, we thank you for the fact that Jesus Christ um, lived a sinless life and that he gave himself up for us. And God, now, even though we still struggle with sin, with temptation, God, that he is calm, he waits, and he intercedes on our behalf. I pray that as we leave from this place, God, that we would be those marked by bold assurance, full assurance of the fact that you have completed a good work in us, that you've began a good work and will complete it. And I pray that we would trust in you, God, that whenever we feel the weight of sin, God, that we would confess it, that we'd be quick to give honor and glory to our Father in heaven. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.